Do you feel you have been living in turbulent times? <laughs> Is that a funny question or what? Yes, there's been, there's been difficulties in the, in the past few years, of course, and we still kind of are in the residual effects of that, but this just keeps on going on, doesn't it? It seems like we turn on the TV and there's other things that go on in the news, we're going, oh, what now? And we don't want to ask that question because we know probably something else will come that is even worse. But uh, maybe also, too, maybe you feel like you've uh, experienced some troubled times personally. You're going through about yourself. Maybe it's something physical that you've, you've gone through some illness or some situation where you're going to need surgery or you're going to have issues going on that you just you, you don't know, aches and pains. How am I going to get through this day or, or whatever it might be? Maybe you're going through um, troubling times and you're personally um, uh, with relationships and trying to deal with situations around you in that way how you're going to mend those relationships, how these things are ever going to get better. And, and it just weighs on you, stuff like that. You might be going through difficult times in some way, personally as well. But I, I, I find that um, when we go through those difficult times, I trust that we turn to God in these times, that we turn to Him and know that even during, during the good times, God, God has provided and has, has led and directed. He will during the difficult times too, the turbulent times, the troubled times. And we shouldn't have any less faith or any less commitment to God when it gets troubling. We shouldn't abandon ship. We should keep going and know that God is in control. And so thinking about that and all the different things that have gone on and how we're facing some Fun times here in the fall coming up with elections and stuff like that. And I'm sure you're, you're getting a lot of wonderful input from people you know and as well as commercials. Um, but for us, how do we navigate that? How do we journey through that? Well, the book of Isaiah is a wonderful book to go through. Now, 66 chapters. We only have about nine weeks, so we're not going to go through all 66 chapters. But we're going to just touch on some of this to give us a taste of what it means to be able to trust God through difficult times, trusting God through troubled times. And I, I, I figure that as we go through these few Sundays leading up to Thanksgiving, we'll be able to hopefully get a grasp of what God wants for us and how He wants to us to navigate these days. But Isaiah, he, he lived through some turbulent times as well, too. Uh, he was called to his work at a time when a when a famous Assyrian king was building his empire into the largest and cruelest Western Asia had ever seen. And, and he saw the neighboring kingdoms of Israel crack and collapse and vanish and in a frenzy of intrigue and assassination and siege and deportation and imprisonment, Israel was coming down. And for 40 years, Isaiah was, was a king's advisor. For 40 years. That would be, a, that would be a, quite a while being able to uh, come up with some more advice for this king and, and trying to help this king move, move forward, or the kings. But he was you know, walking quietly in the corridors of power and challenging a fearful king at this moment to trust God. And he encouraged this king to trust God when he himself could see the, the campfires of the apparently uh, invincible Assyrian army right outside the city's, city's gates and uh, hearing the roaring threats of the Syrian general coming over, over the walls. He still had to be um, encouraging to the king and try to build that king up to be uh, 
strong, courageous during this time. Now, we know nothing of Isaiah's wife, but he did have two sons with names that were signposts to coming events. His oldest son, his name means a remnant shall return, and that was going to happen. His youngest son, his name, his name means quickly to spoils, plunder speedily. And that's probably identifying what was going to be happening with God's people as they were going to be plundered and taken eventually. Isaiah was a, was a social critic, he, ruthlessly applying God's law to what he saw. A true prophet. He didn't care what happened. He just spoke the truth. Probably not so much in love, but just let him know this is what God says. Take it or leave it. It's your choice. <laughs> and some, you know, we come up with uh, against those people sometimes, and we think, could you use just a little more grace in that? Couldn't you maybe a little more mercy in that? But Isaiah was a type of prophet that uh, he didn't have any time for that. Pretty much, he just had to express God's truth, and people had to decide what they were going to do with that truth. Um, he was a prophet who saw both the present and the future in an eternal light. And so he, 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 he didn't have much time for the helping people feel good about stuff. He was a pastor or a shepherd looking with a compassion on his people and feeding them by teaching them what was going on. He was a poet, seeing the same things and events as others, but seeing them more fully, more deeply, and more sharply. So it's our privilege to be able to look at these words of, uh, in the book of Isaiah and, and to be led um, and to be encouraged and challenged by uh, journeying these days that we have before us. But to be still and to observe and to receive and to meditate on what Isaiah said in order that we also too might be able to trust God more and draw, draw from those waters of, of, of the wells of salvation. Uh, being able to soak those things up, be able to be encouraged to walk forward in God's light. Now, as I mentioned, Isaiah has 66 chapters, and it represents 40 years of ministry of Isaiah. And so you might wonder, so what is the unusual impact that Isaiah had in those 66 chapters? Most of the time, he lived what he talked, which must be our aim as well, too. And as we journey through this series of messages together, we want our lives to find a, a still center and a quietness in the strength of Isaiah's words. I think a key verse that could probably keep us through all these uh, nine Sundays coming up or so is found in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. You can just write that reference down. If you want Isaiah 30, 15, look it up later. I'll read it to you now, though. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. So if anything you get out of this series of messages, I think Isaiah 30, verse 15, would be one that we should keep on our refrigerator door for the weeks ahead. A.W. Tozer, one of Emily Aitken's favorite authors, and I don't know if she's watching or not uh, later on, but she, uh, she's all about A.W. Tozer. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God 
is the most important thing about us. Our whole life is about being in relationship with God. That's the most important thing, knowing God, loving God, serving God. Of course, that relationship with Him of salvation, too. And what we think about the Lord really shapes everything we do. For instance, if you see God as your loving Father, you will begin to trust Him. If you see God as the wise Lord, you will submit to Him. Now, on the other hand, if you see God as a vague and faraway being, or if you think of Him mainly as a stern judge, then this will change how you relate to Him as well. So do you have high thoughts of God? Do you have big thoughts about God? Thankful and holy thoughts about Him? This will transform your prayers, your worship, as well as your loyalty to Him as well. And whenever God shows Himself to His people by His mighty deeds, or when God gives His promises, He expects a response. And we see this throughout Isaiah quite a bit as He gives expectations and shows up and gives His glory. There's some response that needs to happen from that as well. And again, out of Isaiah, that, that's what is revealed. The Lord, the Lord is revealed in remarkable ways through this book. And every part of Scripture does that, of course. But in Isaiah, we're given an incredible portrait of one true God. And Isaiah has, has, has very high thoughts of God. And he presents a grand view of God as the, the creator and the judge, as well as the redeemer. Isaiah himself had a life-changing encounter with God. You can read about it in Isaiah 6. It happened in that chapter when he saw God in his temple, surrounded by angels, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And this vision clearly put a stamp on Isaiah's ministry because in his prophecies, he often refers to the Holy One of Israel. And this was God's glory, and it moved him to adoration, it moved him to repentance, uh, trust, and comfort. So how should we be moved by the glory of God? How are you moved by the glory of God? And in order to be moved by the glory of God, too, we need to be in tune to Him. We need to be listening to Him. And so the question comes to us, are we listening? Are you listening to God? Do you hear Him through the noise of this world? In this first chapter in Isaiah, that's where we're going to land here today, I want to share three sections to the vision Isaiah receives from the Holy One of Israel. We're going to see the messenger in his time, we're going to see the message of judgment, and we're going to see his message of hope. And hopefully through all these three sections, we'll also be drawn into encouraging uh, words from Isaiah as well, too, as we find hope in God. Now, every book, every book has a title, and Isaiah is no different from this. We find it in the first verse, Isaiah 1. It says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he, he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So we'll get, to, we'll get to one of uh, Isaiah's key prophecies in a few minutes, but we pause here at the title here in, in verse 1. It's packed with, with vital clues for understanding the book and its context. 
First, this book is the record of a vision. That means it's a message from God, a truth disclosed by the Lord to his prophet. And Isaiah didn't follow his imagination or share his, his wishful thinking for these 66 chapters, but God gave this message through the Holy Spirit. And the word vision doesn't always mean a visual experience, like when some prophets saw incredible sights from God in their mind's eye. Isaiah's messages seem to have come more often as words, uh, the, the Lord speaking directly to his prophet. And it's interesting that uh, God's call for Isaiah to be a prophet isn't placed first in the book. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's not in chapter 1. Of course, it comes in chapter 6 when he approaches them. But so five chapters, <laughs> five chapters there are before that. His call is placed that, in that time, though, later on. And probably to emphasize those first five chapters. This is my call. This is what needs to happen. Now, Isaiah, you're going to be the guy to do it. And here you are, and, and I'm calling you. But many of the key themes of Isaiah are here. There's rebellion. <laughs> there's judgment. There's hope. There's restoration as well. And these themes are often repeated throughout this book. Isaiah wants his audience to know from the beginning, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. Here's the vision that I'm sharing with you. This is how God's people have lost their way and what God is going to do about it. So who was this Isaiah? Again, like most of the prophets, we really don't know much about the guy. He's simply identified as the son of Amos here in, this, in the, verse 1. And the name Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. Great, great name for this message uh, that's coming through Isaiah to the people. In today's, uh, today's text, we're going to see how that is such an appropriate name for this servant of the Lord. God saves. And Isaiah may have been a resident of Jerusalem because he's often ministering in the capital city. In fact, verse 1 says that this is the focus of his ministry, Judah and Jerusalem. And some also suggest that Isaiah was of noble birth, because in this book he seems to have an easy access to the kings, coming and speaking with them whenever he wanted. But we really don't know, of course. But the other important thing to notice here in verse 1 is the time in which Isaiah ministers. He mentions the four kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And at first glance, those names don't mean much to us. But this was how an Israelite thought of time. Not in specific, but in terms of who was on the throne. <laughs> who, was, who was ruling at that time? It's kind of like looking back at Billy Graham and his life of ministry during the 14 presidencies from Harry S. Truman all the way to Donald Trump. Over 60 years of ministry. Looking at these kings more closely, Isaiah had a, a long period of ministry. His work started in the year that King Uzziah died, which was about 740 B.C. And from then to the time of Hezekiah, uh, say about 700 or 690 B.C., is 40 or 50 years. It's good to keep in mind because Isaiah didn't speak these 66 chapters again all at once. It was a representation of over several decades of giving this vision. So what was life like in Judah and Jerusalem during this time? Not great. Not great at all. 
There were definitely some prosperous and peaceful years, but in general, Judah lived in fear. In the back of their minds was the constant threat of Assyria. This was the superpower of the Middle East at the time. The empire located to the northeast and ever intent on expanding their kingdom. The other big power was Egypt to the south and with, hell, uh, with wealthy lands that Assyria wanted to claim. So Judah really was feeling the pressure all around, especially from the aggressive Assyrians. And as for Judah's neighbors uh, <laughs> to the north, the ten tribes of Israel, they were soon to be taken away. In less than 40, or excuse me, in less than 20 years, the Assyrians would invade and conquer and take the Israelites into exile. So imagine Judah's anxiety when they see what happens to their cousins and uncles in the north. When would it be their turn? When would it happen to them? It was a time of uncertainty, a looming sense of hopelessness. What can they ever hope to do against Assyria? God is so gracious then to send His prophet during these critical decades that we see. Now Isaiah is allowed to see what's really going on, what God is doing among the nations. And he has hard, hard words for the Lord's people, but he also has hope for them as well. Some powerful, lasting hope. And his good news founded not, only, not, not on any earthly redeemer, but on the one whom God is going to send as Savior. And in general, it's, it's not hard to see how relevant this message is for us. <laughs> We're not living in fear of invasion, of course, but the church does live in uncertain times. The believer, the follower of Christ, lives in uncertain times as the world presses in on us. There are certainly pressures on believers in this land, internal pressures. There's also external pressures, too. We might be nervous about what the future is going to bring. And like I mentioned, come up in November, and elections happen What's going to happen here with the leadership and who's going to be in, in, in position of authority and government? And, but it, those things we can worry about if we want to. But as we hear Isaiah's words and what he's telling us, yes, you can look down the line there, but know that God is in control. God is going to help through all this time. And the greatest threat is the same, though, as it has always been, though. Remember that it's not people that we're up against, ultimately, it's a spiritual warfare, as has been mentioned in the adult Sunday school discussion time. Being able to realize that we are against the authorities, um, that Satan, Satan is, is coming up against uh, us with, and he's using this to come up against God's people, get them off target, to get them off commitment with, with God to be able to lead them astray, lead us astray. And so we need to keep focus on this, that Satan is the one. He's the prince of darkness who seeks to kill and destroy. It's not your friend on Facebook who suddenly just made a horrible reply to your post. <laughs> it's, it's the devil that wants to take us, twist us, and keep us in, in opposition against everyone. He doesn't want peace. He doesn't want harmony. He wants chaos. And we need to realize that. And when we do, it's a spiritual battle that we fight, not a fleshly one of people around us. 
But he will use godless governments against Christ's people. He will use the lure, lure of mindless entertainment and materialism. He will use whatever tool to distract and divide and weaken the church to get their eyes off God. Give them low thoughts of God. Make them forget what they have and how rich they are in Christ. Don't let the devil do that to you. Don't let him get you off focus. Don't let him get you off mission. We need to stay on mission and realize God is using you in an incredible way, and He will continue to do so. Keep your eyes on Him. So, God speaks. The Holy One confronts us with His glory so that we are moved. Moved to repent from sin. Moved to trust in Him. Moved to worship Him. Moved to hold on to our true comfort in Christ. That's where the comfort comes from. Try to hold on to comfort and peace in a political person or some kind of agenda. It's not going to work. We need to have our peace and trust coming from uh, trust in so peace and comfort comes from Christ alone. So let's move forward to the prophet's message of judgment here. First, uh, uh, realize that again, not all is well in Judah. <laughs> International relations are tense. But even worse is their spiritual state. In chapter one, God brings a serious charge against his covenant people. He even calls on heaven and earth as a witness in verse 2, that all may see how God is true and His people are false. And God reminds Judah of who they are in verse 2, I have nourished and brought up children. They were, just as we are today, indescribably privileged to know God as Father, to receive His good gifts, to enjoy His, his care. But to our shame... <laughs> Domesticated animals are often more grateful than God's people. In verse 3, the ox knows his master and the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Animals can get it, but you guys can't. What's with that? Instead of being thankful to God, loyal to the one who fed them, they are rebellious children who, in verse 4, despise the Holy One of Israel. And there is Isaiah's favorite name for God, the Holy One of Israel. He is the Holy One because God stands alone and distinct. He's set apart, not only from sin, but as one who is exceptional in glory and majesty. The nations all, all had their gods, but they didn't even come close to the Lord in His greatness. There's only one God in all the universe, and He is our God. The Holy One. Who, who, how wrong is it to, to turn away from Him then? How wrong is it to go our own way? <laughs> how wrong is it to ignore Him? So God calls His rebellious people to repent. Otherwise, He will judge them severely. In verses 16 and 17, there are two sets of commands for a total of nine commands. And the first four in verse 16 have to do with putting away sin. And the next five in verse 17 are about pursuing what is right. Let's look at those and see if we can gather any kind of uh, direction. Putting away sin. God says to His sinful people in verse 16, wash yourselves. Wash yourselves. Beginning of this, uh, this last week, we had the stomach flu go through the steel home. Oh, fun stuff, fun stuff. 
And I knew right away that I needed to make sure I had my hands clean. <laughs> and as I did that and kept them you know, sanitized and everything else, somehow, by God's grace and glory, I was able to escape <laughs> that uh, stomach flu stuff. But uh, keeping your hands clean and washing your hands, it's true, it helps quite a bit in um, staying away from all the contaminating stuff. But sin always has a contaminating effect in our lives. And God wanted the Israelites to be busy every day with ceremonial cleansing, not just to avoid viruses and infections, but to teach them about removing the stain of sin. So for us, we're constantly being tainted by this world's evil. So we must stay clean and close to God every day, coming to Him and realizing that if He points something out in our lives that isn't quite right, we need to agree with Him. You're right. That needs to be taken care of. Could you please cleanse me from that? Could you please clean me up? And we come before God in that way, and as we journey uh, as a follower of Christ, there are going to be moments where we're going to need to get cleaned up. It just happens. So wash yourselves. And then also do wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. The holy God seeks a holy people, pure before the Lord. In, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. It's an undivided affection to God. And so we need to have that going on before Him, the Holy One. And God, in His grace, gives the way for cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a way. We do, we, <laughs> there are no more sacrifices, as shown here in the Old Testament, that need to happen. Jesus has done it. And so we just need to receive that and be cleansed from what, and be cleansed from all the sins that are in our lives through the washing of His blood that has been on the on the cross. Jesus sacrificed His body in that way, and so because of that sacrifice, we do not have to make any more sacrifices like the Israelites had to do in the Old Testament times. Make yourself clean. Jesus has. <laughs> He's done that. We need to go to Him and make sure that we are clean. A third command, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. You know, a really good measure of repentance is what we do with the thing that caused us to sin in the first place. Do we get rid of it altogether? Do we rid ourselves of that lifestyle or thought process or whatever it might be totally? Or do we just keep a little bit in the cupboard there, just in case? We were kind of fond of it. It's been part of our lives for so long, hard to get rid of it. But if you keep a little bit there reserved for in your life, you better be sure it's going to multiply like yeast through bread, and it's going to make everything just expand. That sin in your life, that you haven't allowed God to take care of all of it, if you've reserved a little bit for yourself, cherished sin, it's going to wreak havoc in your life your spiritual walk. Do we keep the temptation nearby like an old friend? Do we hold on to it so we can go back to it? Or do we remove the uncleanness before it poisons us again? We need to rid that of our lives. Put it away, God says. I don't even want to see it, He says. And so then the fourth command says, cease to do evil. <laughs> In the counseling of Bob Newhart, stop it. <laughs> Knock it off. Cease to do evil. 
If Judah will enjoy God's protection and blessing, they need to stop sinning so willfully. Knock it off. I'm reminded of a portion of Scripture in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, the first 15 verses. There's a pool near the sheep gate, and all these people come to it, and apparently when the water is stirred by an angelic being, then they can go into the pool and be healed from their infirmities, whatever it might be. And there's this guy that sits inside the pool, and he's, he's lame, not able to move, invalid. And whenever that happens, whenever the waters are stirred, he isn't able to get in because everyone gets in before him. And so he sits there, and he's just lamenting the fact that he can't do this. And then Jesus comes by, and he sees them there, and he says, Do you want to be healed? you want to be well or not? And uh, he gives this sob story, and Jesus said, Well, pick up your mat and walk. And he did, and he was healed right there. And then later on, down, down the line, uh, it says that uh, in verse 14, it says, Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. <laughs> now, I don't think he would have said that if this guy wasn't sinning. The guy didn't return to what he had done before. And so Jesus even told not only that former invalid of 38 years to stop sinning or something worse may happen to, to you, I believe He also gives us that message as well. I've died on the cross for your sins. I've brought healing to you spiritually. With, uh, your relationship is restored with God. Stop doing what you did before, <laughs> or something worse may happen to you. Cease to do evil. Now, here's a good question for us. When we, when we have sinned and we feel bad about it, do we truly repent or do we simply repeat? Is it repent or repeat? We do it again a while later. God calls us to abandon the old ways, forsake the old life, pursue the new creation God has made in you. So put away sin, and then the other commands here that we find, pursuing what is right. These second commands here, they speak, these five speak to better things. And notice that, that most of these relate to how we treat our neighbor. Now Judah was, was very good at sacrifice and ceremony, and this chapter makes that clear. Well-fed cattle and the blood of bulls. And the, their church services were flawless. They performed wonderfully. But God doesn't simply require right offerings to him. He also requires the right treatment of other people. And Judah was treating people unjustly. He said that Isaiah began prophesying, well, we said that Isaiah began prophesying at the end of King Uzziah's reign. And Uzziah's reign had actually been a long and prosperous one. He was, a, he was a good man who led the people faithfully, so they enjoyed God's blessing on their crops and, and work. But what happened in this time of wealth? <laughs> people lost their heart for the poor. They began to oppress them. And in their prosperity, the rich got richer and the poor were left behind. They forgot. Isaiah describes it in verse 23. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Everyone was too busy making their, making their money to think about those who were needy. 
too self-absorbed to care for the helpless and the troubled. So, God issues a command. Verse 17, learn to do good. <laughs> learn to do good. He wants His people to develop a new mind for holiness, to become skilled in doing good. This is always another mark of true repentance. With what good thing will you replace the evil that used to occupy you? What are you going to do now to replace that lifestyle? What are you, what are you going to do now with your life to do good? And it sounds strange, but we don't always know what the good things are that we can, we can do. For example, if we've been careless with our money for years, or dishonest in our business practices, it can actually be hard to find more God-pleasing ways of conduct. I'll, I'll stop cheating the government. Or, and I, won't, I won't waste my money like I used to. Those are things you won't do. What will you do? What's the alternative to take its place? What can you do? Instead of simply accumulating more money, what good purpose will I put it towards? I have to learn. I have to find that out. I have, I have to find people who need it more than I do, building God's kingdom with my money. Lord, show me the good I can do. Help me learn. And so in your walk with Christ, that's the thing you also do, can ask God, what good can I do? What is, how can I learn to do this? What is it you want me to do? And again, it's not to gain salvation, of course. You've got that. You've received Christ as your Savior. Now, what are you going to do? What's the good you're going to do before you? Another command that's given here, seek justice. Seek justice. This must become a new pursuit for God's people. We hear lots about social justice today, don't we? But it's a biblical idea, really. Justice is all about treating people fairly, living according to God's will in our relationships. Am I, am I, am I fair toward my children? Uh, do I treat my employees with kindness? Do I honor the commitments I made to my spouse? The commitments I, commitments I made to, to my church family? Do I live a just and honorable life? Another prophet took that a little bit further in Micah 6, 8. Seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. That's a trifecta that I think we all can learn to do. And another command is given here too. Correct oppression. Correct oppression. When a person is bullying someone else, treating them harshly, it's too easy to kind of look the other way. Uh, it's kind of embarrassing. Don't want to be involved. You know, it's probably complicated. It's not my business. Not going to step in all this. But God calls us to correct the situation and admonish those who mistreat others. If someone's being treated badly by somebody, we need to step in and say, you know, that's not right. I don't think you should be doing that, really. What are you doing? We need to restrain evil before evil takes hold. And I think that's what's been going on all around us these days. <laughs> we need to be stepping in and saying, stop. No. This person is loved by God. No matter the color, no matter the sexual orientation, this person is loved by God. And we need to step up, stand up for those who are being oppressed. The constant theme of God's law is that we must care for the poor. And that command is amplified in the New Testament through Jesus' many teachings and showing, about showing mercy. 
So these last two commands are to the point. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So help, basically help those who lack resources and take up the cause of those who need support. The church will always have members who need care. We will always have someone who needs help in some way. Maybe we don't have many who are actually fatherless here, but we do have widows. We do have widowers. We also have those who have a harder time getting around easily. <laughs> they might be all alone, friendless, searching for help. God calls us to see them and to help them. What kind of encouraging word, what kind of thing that you, can you do to help someone within our church family in that way? What's some kind of encouraging thing or something you can do for those in your neighborhood that you know of in that way? God's calling us to not only see them, but to help them. God's will was clear, but the people of Judah were, fall, were failing in their basic duty toward each other. And they can't continue in their evil and expect to escape judgment. Verse 20 says, But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. They had already experienced some, some of this judgment. Uh, like in verse 7, Your cities are burned with fire. Assyria had already flexed their muscles a bit, sending raids into the land and leaving ruins behind. This was a preview of the awful things to come if the people would not repent. Judah couldn't avoid judgment by, by more ritual or longer prayers. Their services were great. That, that, they had that down. That wasn't going to fix it. God takes no pleasure in the offerings of the wicked. They had to repent or they would perish. God's people always need this lesson. We always need this warning. We live in a time when we're told that personal freedom is the ultimate good. You can do what you want. You're answerable to no one. You do you. We don't like to think about consequences. What will come of your greed? Where will constant pride bring me? Where does a, a life without prayer end up? Sin brings misery, always. It's not always obvious right away, but it's certain. Just ask David. For this is the holy God working out His justice, showing love by trying to warn us, telling us that those who live apart from Him will not inherit the kingdom of Christ. But there is hope. We turn to that section, the message of hope. Lots of hope. God invites us to ponder the possibilities in verse 18 with the phrase, Come now and let us reason together. After all that was going on, then he finally gets to verse 18 and says, Come now, let us reason together. He wants Judah to do its best thinking. If rebellion brings destruction and sin leads to misery, then what does repentance bring? Hmm, let's talk about this. How will God reward the one who trusts in Him? Even an ox or donkey could figure this out. God as righteous judge has been reviewing Judah's case, has it before him. And now summing things up, he reasons with the accused in verse 18. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. It only took God one chapter, and He has demonstrated the guilt of His people so clearly. 
Their sin is painted in vivid colors, scarlet and crimson. Scarlet is a, a red dye made from a worm, and crimson was a red-colored cloth. Judah's sin was like blood-colored stains on their souls. And it was unmistakable, it was obvious, it was glaring. And that's the state of our guilt before God as well. Even if our own awareness of sin is weak, and we dare to think of, a, of ourselves as decent people, our sins are like scarlet. It doesn't matter. This is one of the areas where older Christians often say they have grown the most in their knowledge of sin. The more time you spend in the Word, the more you see your failings. You realize you're not, you're not all in all. You're, you're, you're not God. God is the one we need to follow. He's the one that provides for us. He's the one that sustains us. The more time you spend in the Word, the more you see your failings. The better you get to know the glories of God, His holiness, and His excellence, the more you realize just how small you are and how little you deserve from God's hand. What He has given us, we're so blessed. He loves you. He loves each one of us and wants the best for us. God offers free and total pardon. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Snow can quickly become blindingly white, especially in the sun. Remember our trips over to a backpack in the Green Lakes area and then trying to summit South Sister. And there's a glacier area that you need to cross. And on sunny days, if you didn't have sunglasses on, that was tough to go through because it was all around you, sun blasting off that white snow, glacier snow, and you couldn't keep your eyes open if you didn't have sunglasses on. It's a picture of pure, perfect purity. David says in Psalm 51, verse 7, Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Can't imagine anything being whiter than snow. Though, and though your sins are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Yeah, underneath the sheep's uh, brownish outer layer, its wool is incredibly white. So will be our sin. Our sins will become the very opposite what they are, from dark stained to pure white, God will wash us clean. If we repent, God is willing to forgive us. He is willing to, to make us holy, not for our sake, but for the sake of the promised Messiah, the one Isaiah speaks about later on. This is the Lord's great mercy. As Isaiah said in verse 9, unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. Two ancient cities utterly crushed for the rebellion. And Jerusalem should have been crushed too, and we should have been as well. But God saves some for Himself. Pardon is possible, but there's a condition. First, it takes ears to hear. Are you listening? Are you listening to what God has for you today when He approaches you? with maybe what you should not be doing or what you should be and you're not. And then there's the response. How will people respond to the glory of the Lord once we listen? What will we do when we, we know of His holiness and His righteousness and His grace? God has held out judgment, but now He holds out hope. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient you shall eat the best from the land. Will God's people be willing? 
Are you willing to believe the Lord's promise? To really trust Him and commit your life to Him entirely? Are you willing to be obedient in all areas of your life to God? Will you submit to the clear words of the Lord when He tells you to put away your evil, learn to do good, defend the fatherless and plead for the widow, and to act justly? Are you ready and willing to move forward in that way? To those who love Him, God promises amazing good through Jesus Christ. (laughs) To those who trust and obey, God extends His, His great mercy. But to those who rebel, God assures them of destruction. So what is our response to the glory of the Lord? How does He move you? Are you listening in any way? If you are, trust that the Holy Spirit's been speaking to your heart. And however He is speaking to your heart, that you respond in obedience. That you say, yes, you're right, God. There needs to be some changes. Help me. Help me make those changes. Work in my life. Clean out the, the, the gunk. Wash me. Wash me clean. That's your prayer today, and you're, you're asking God to make some changes in your life in that way. The altar is open. You can come and pray. Those who are joining us online, same thing. You can just create a little time, a moment right there, you and God. Just have a little time of prayer. And even if the altar seems a little inhibiting for you, you've got, you've got God right there with you to be able to spend some time with. I'm going to have the worship team coming up. They're going to join us in leading us in the last two songs. And as they do, if the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you in some way, maybe it's you need to listen more. <laughs> maybe you need to stop and listen and be still before God. And if you are listening, what are you doing when the glory of God is revealed to you? And He has, uh, glory of God has been revealed. Jesus has been revealed to us. What are you doing with that? How is God working through you? Something to keep in mind, something to ask uh, yourself. And again, if the Holy Spirit's speaking to your heart and there needs to be some work to be done, I pray that you act in obedience upon it.